if my customer carries the combination to keep the Bibles open, um, whatever passage they're preaching on. And so if you're able to do that, if that's comfortable for you, I think it's helpful uh, to see the Word of God as we refer to various things in the passage. And so we're looking at Psalm 69 this morning. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there are three aspects to every psalm that we as God's people need to understand. And the first aspect of every psalm is what is called the immediate context. Uh, in other words, what is happening in the life of the inspired author at that particular time. Because we know that the psalms were written in real-life situations and they reflect real-life experiences. But secondly, the second aspect of every psalm is, is how that psalm is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because indeed, all of the Old Testament is written about the life and the suffering of Christ. And during his life on earth, even as we look at this psalm that speaks of the torment that the Messiah would go through, uh, the overwhelming troubles that he would face, we know that all through his life, and especially at the end, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ endured great suffering and persecution. And this is foreshadowed in Psalm 69 and other psalms by his ancestor David. And as we approach Good Friday, we want to reflect a little bit this morning on the emotional torment that our Lord underwent, not only at the cross, but at many times in his life. But then, once we've looked at those two aspects, then the third question is, does this, these psalms, and Psalm 69 in particular, do they have nothing to say to us? Does it to do with us as God's people? Well, certainly not, because there's a third aspect to every psalm. Uh, although they're uh, ultimately um, foreshadowed and lived out by someone in a particular context, and ultimately fulfilled by Christ, they have a lot to say to the church as we continue in our pilgrimage here on earth. For instance, as in Psalm 69, we know that we too, like David, will face injustice in this world. We too will, face, will find ourselves facing enemies and situations that are overwhelming. We too will face accusations and even threats and persecution at the, at the hands of the world at various times in our lives. We too will struggle with our personal problems. We, we too will struggle with personal sins, some of which can be ongoing and cause us great trial and frustration and anguish in this world. And the question is, as we face the troubles of this life, whether it be persecution from the world, persecution from the devil, even the internal suffering that we go through and in our, our lives, how do we cope with these things? And like David, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, we look in faith to the Lord our God. And so our theme as we look at Psalm 69 this morning is this, the faith that looks to God in the most overwhelming of times. The faith that looks to God in the most overwhelming of times. And we'll see that that faith includes, as we uh, follow along the, the, the teaching of Psalm 69, that faith includes, in the first place, a cry for desperation, a, a cry of desperation. In the second place, a word of confession. And in the third place, a plea for retribution. But as we learn from Psalm 69 about the faith that looks to God in the most overwhelming of times, we see in the first place that that faith includes a cry of desperation. And this desperation is heard right at the very beginning of this psalm. David says, Save me, O God, for the water has come up to my neck. And, and he depicts his situation here using imagery that that people of that time, people of our times, we can relate to. The imagery of a drowning person who cries 
because he realizes that he is now in terrible trouble. Some people can relate to this right away because some people are extremely naturally afraid of water and uh, so can relate to this uh, sense of panic that, uh, that someone would experience if you place them in water that, that is uh, anything more than maybe knee deep or especially if you have had a bad experience um, in a pool, in a lake, when you've gone on vacation or in the ocean and maybe you've had a bad experience in water and you remember uh, as if you were there right now that terrifying feeling of, of going down in the water and the helplessness and panic that arises in you and the sheer fright that overtakes you. And it's one of the, one of the most frightening experiences we can have uh, as people because if there's nothing to hold on to, nothing to grab a hold of and pull yourself up, or there's no foothold that you can put your foot on to push yourself back out of the water, there's nothing you can do and you just sink. And so no wonder David compares his situation to drowning. He says, the waters have come up to my neck. Literally, the Hebrew says, the waters have come unto my toe. doesn't really say neck in, in the original Hebrew, but all translations, as far as I know, they, they translate it this way, the waters have come up to my neck. And literal, the liber, literally in the Hebrew, it says, the waters have come unto my soul. Or the word, word soul can also be translated life. And uh, what the translators of our edition, the NKJV, the NIV, uh, even the ESV, what they try to do is interpret the sense of the Hebrew. What is David expressing here? He's expressing the feeling that would come over a person if the water is now threatening his life. Is at the point where it's beginning to threaten his life. The panic would really set in if you think about it. If we're in a situation where we, start, where we feel the water rise up to our necks, that's when we really begin to think, okay, if this goes any higher, What's going to happen? I will not be able to breathe. This is getting too close to comfort. For comfort, this is getting very, very serious now. And that's how David felt, as he is antagonized by his enemies. And maybe he's tried to ward them off. Maybe he's tried to make some kind of defense, but they kept coming and they kept growing stronger. And at this point, he cries out in desperation, save me, O God, I'm about to be swallowed up alive here. They're, go they're not going to stop until I am dead. From verse 4, we get the sense as well that his enemies were quite numerous. And they were wrongfully accusing him of some kind of ungodly behavior, which is not really defined for us. Who these enemies were, we know we're not really told. But in this psalm, David expresses his overwhelming distress. And it had to be bad, because if we know anything about David, we know that David was no coward. David was no push. Nobody used to just push around very gently. This was David who, as a very, as a boy, he said to Saul, if a, a lion or a bear attacked his sheep, and if they grabbed one, he would go after it, and he would whack it over the head with his staff, and he would take the, his, the, his father's animal back out of its mouth. And he would kill whatever ferocious animal was attacking his father's property. This is the David who, even as a youth, went up against the giant Goliath and slew him. And so he, David was a warrior of the finest caliber. If you read the rest of his, uh, his story in First and Second Samuel, you, you'll see that again and again. David was no pushover. But as we all know as human beings, and we learn this very quickly, we can face the toughest situations in life. But then the sheer meanness of people can deflate all our courage. 
or certain situations that we face in life, it can just deflate us and it can take all the fight out of us. There are times when human hatred and evil maliciousness, they become a load too heavy to bear. And we feel as if we're just being buried by an avalanche of bitterness and we're drowning in sorrow. And like David, we're all cried out and we have nothing left. And yet the enemy keeps coming. David gives us a little more detail in verses 7 to 12. Apparently, he was in the midst of spiritual warfare here. He was being attacked by those who hated him because of his faithfulness to the Lord. They cast scorn upon him. They taunted him and they treated him with contempt because of his devotion to God. Because zeal for the Lord's house consumed him. That's why they were persecuting him. They treated him as someone who was disgraced. Even his own family at one point, as he mentions in verse 8, distanced themselves from him. And when he wept before the Lord, presumably that means weeping in contrition, in sorrow for his sin, what did they do? They mocked him. When he fasted, they despised him. When he put on sackcloth with him, that also was another way of showing contrition and sorrow for your sins. What did they do? They made jokes about him. Even the elders who sat at the city gate, the respected wise men, they spoke against him. And to add insult to injury, the drunkards sang songs about him, making fun of him. And so he prays in verses 19 to 21. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. David cries out here in desperation to God, and he appeals to the one who knows all and sees all. He confesses his condition and how he was being treated to his God. And he confesses to God that there was no one to comfort him. There was none who took pity on him. The expression in verse 21 that they gave me gall for my food and vinegar for my thirst is is not to be taken literally in in David's case. The Hebrew word that's translated gall is elsewhere translated poison. For instance, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 32, poisonous weeds or hemlock, uh, depending on the version of the Bible you use in Hosea 10, verse 4. Sometimes, quite often, wormwood. And and the, the word, the Hebrew word, describes a poisonous plant that was quite bitter to the taste. But when the word is used in the Bible, it's always used, except for one time, and we'll look at that in a little bit, but when the word is used in the the Bible, it's always used figuratively. Example in Jeremiah 8.14, where Israel confesses that the Lord has given us uh, water of gall, or poisonous water, or bitter water to drink. What do they mean by that? Not literally, it means that the Lord has made their lives bitter. And so the sense of gall and vinegar then, is that David had been subjected to very unkind, we would say uh, inhumane treatment by those around him. Many years later, however, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would actually be given these things to consume. In Matthew 7, or 27, sorry, in Matthew 27, verses 33 to 34, Matthew 27, verses 33 to 34, we read, 
of Jesus, they came to a place which is called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, that is uh, that's uh, literally vinegar, uh, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And then in 47 to 48, we hear this, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And so what David suffered figuratively in the Old Testament, Christ would suffer literally on the cross. Now, vinegar mixed with gall seems to have been customarily given to crucified victims to numb the pain of their suffering. But, but Luke, in his gospel, chapter 23, verse 36, also mentions that the soldiers offered it to Jesus as they mocked him. And if we think of the context in which Jesus fulfilled Psalm 69, we see that his sufferings far surpassed whatever his forefather David endured. On the cross, Jesus' desperate cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? would be heard. As he experienced the overwhelming flood of his enemy's hatred, as he bore upon himself the, the full weight of God's anger against sin, as the spotless lamb became a curse for you and me. He would be despised and rejected by men, says Isaiah 53. At one time, his own family, we know, distanced themselves from Jesus. He was wrongfully and unjustly accused again and again in his life, and he was targeted because zeal for his father's house consumed him. Even the thieves crucified with him at, at one point uh, mocked him. But you know what the amazing thing is? The amazing thing is that Jesus Christ came to the cross knowing full well all that would take place. Knowing full well Psalm 69 and all that was spoken of him in the Old Testament. All that he would have to endure for the sake of you and I, for our salvation. But there is yet something we can learn from this psalm. And that is that we too may and should cry out in desperation to the Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, when the waters have come up to our necks, when it seems that the cost of living as a Christian in this world is too great, when the mocking of our enemies and the derision of the world threatens to overwhelm us. And perhaps it's more subtle than David's persecution and certainly not as physically painful as Christ. But if we think about it, there is great suffering that we endure in this world as God's people, especially as we try to live out our lives and our calling in this world. Think about it. More and more, we as the Christian church are being made to feel as if we are the weirdos, we are the freaks in this world. If you don't believe in a woman's right to choose, if you disagree with a couple's right to be married and adopt, regardless of their gender, if you still believe, like some Neanderthal, that only girls must use a girl's bathroom, then you are ignorant and backward, says the world. And what about in Christian circles? Is there a, a kind of subtle persecution that goes on sometimes that can become very frustrating, that can lead some people to tears and great sorrow and anguish because they just don't seem to fit in? Uh, and instead of positive pressure among our young people, we find pressure to, to follow the ways of the world. And you hear comments people make uh, against each other, like, 
so we're speaking uh, uh, to each other and of each other with, with objects, scorn, because they're so caught up in their worldliness and they say uh, of their neighbor, of their fellow Christians, you mean, you mean you don't watch The Bachelor? What's wrong with you? Do you still believe that a couple should wait until after marriage to consummate their love? You don't go to bars? You'd rather listen to your pastor preach the text of a passage rather than telling, telling you what's been on his, on his heart this week? Are you still living in the dark ages? Do you still go to a church that sings psalm that has an organ? And beloved, when the acidic words of others burn us, when we receive unfair criticism, let us, too, as God's people, cry out in desperation to the Lord our God. Let us, as Peter instructs us, cast all our anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for us. But as we learn from Psalm 69 about the faith that looks to God in the most overwhelming of times, we see in the second place that that faith includes a prayer of confession. In verse 5, we hear David saying this, You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. And so what do we learn here? We learn that good, honest confession is a vital part of, pr of prayer. And it's an exhibition of our of true faith. David understood that. Even in the face of all the hardships and difficulties facing, he understood that. And we must understand that. And here's the thing we have to remember always. We cannot, as God's people, go to God complaining about other people's faults when we have our own share of things that we, uh, we are guilty of, sins in our lives. Listen, appeals to God without personal confession are just the rantings of the self-righteous. Appeals to God without personal confession are just the rantings of the self-righteous. David knew that. And he knew that there was sin in his life as well. There was blood on his hands. David had committed adultery. He had committed murder. At times, there were some who thought that they were doing David a favor and they shed blood on his behalf. And so David not only cries out to God in desperation, but confesses his own sin as well. He said, Lord, you know my folly. The Lord knows all. He sees all. And the Hebrew word uh, uh, translated folly in our NIV, it can refer to someone who uh, has two meanings. It can refer to someone who is, uh, we would say, not that bright, not the sharpest tool in the shed, as they say. Or it can refer to someone who is morally deficient. Described, for instance, in Proverbs 7, where the same word is used, where it's used to describe the young man who is seduced by the immoral woman as a fool goes to the correction of his son. And again, uh, if, da if, that, if that's David's meaning here of this word, it could be pointing back again to his adultery with Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. The point is, David does not hide his own sin and his own guilt. He knows that our sins are not hidden from God. And so as we come to God in the most overwhelming of moments in our lives, a mark of true faith is that we're willing to confess our own sins. And if we can't think of any, then we can at least ask the Lord to illumine our minds so that we may see clearly what we have done against him and how we have wronged our neighbor. And we may ask his forgiveness uh, for sins unknown to us even. But self-righteousness must always be far from us. But then how does this psalm 
or the, at least this part of the psalm relates to Christ, who certainly Jesus had no sin to confess. Hebrews 4.15 speaks of Jesus as the one who was without sin. Jesus was sinless. And yet Psalm 69 was a prophecy about him in that our sins were placed upon Jesus. They were imputed to Jesus. We might think of what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 verses 23 to 24. He writes of Jesus, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He, he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Or think of 2 Corinthians 5.21 where we hear that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And to apply to Jesus, Psalm 69 relates to the fact that he made himself accountable for the sins of his own. And that makes Psalm 69 a joyous psalm, a psalm that blesses our souls. Because for his sake, we may not be ashamed. Christ has paid for all our sins. But there is yet one more thing we have to see. As we learn from Psalm 69 about the faith that looks to God in the most overwhelming of times, we see in the third place that that faith includes a, a plea for retribution. Now, retribution is a big word of, uh, meaning to repay someone for what they have done. In David's case, he had been falsely accused. They had mocked him. They had despised him because of his faithfulness to God, because zeal for the Lord's house had consumed him. And so he appealed to God for help. In verses 13 to 18, he says, But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my soul. David's prayer here may be summarized. If we were to put all of that into a nutshell, may be summarized very simply. Lord, don't let the bad guys win. And he makes this plea on the basis of God's mercy, on the basis of God's truth, on the basis of God's promise to save and power to deliver. And he adds in verse 13, in the time of your favor. In the time of your favor. Sometimes we ask things of God and we expect immediate action. David's prayer here teaches us something of the humility we need as we pray. We must be willing to defer to God, to his timing, to submit to his timing, knowing that he always knows the best way and the best time for us. But then David asks for some more specific things in verses 22 to 28. He asks that the comfort of his tormentors be taken away, that their table, that their very eating, in other words, would bring them no enjoyment, that their, their well-being would be taken away from them. He asks that their backs be bent forever which is another picture of despair and suffering all through their lives. 
David prayed that God would pour out his, his wrath, his indignation upon his enemies, and that his fierce anger would take hold of them. He asked that God would wipe them off the very face of the earth, that God would uh, actually allow them to increase their guilt and evil and thus make themselves even more guilty and reap the consequences, which was death, and that their name would not even be associated with the covenant people of God. Now, Psalm 69 is one, um, is one of those what is called uh, the imprecatory psalms. Boys and girls, listen carefully because Dad is going to ask you on the drive home, what's an imprecatory psalm? So you better know. An imprecatory psalm um, refers to those psalms that seek the hurt of someone else. They seek the hurt of someone else. Imprecatory psalms, they can turn, they can turn uh, words of vengeance. And they look for retaliation when injustice has been committed. And, and so, you know, some people are a little bit uncomfortable with imprecatory psalms. Uh, they seem so violent. They seem so out of sync with the Christian, what would Jesus do? Kind of attitude of love and forgiveness. And so some people are, some people in some Christian circles, they're a little bit uncomfortable with imprecatory psalms. But there are a couple of things we need to understand about these kinds of psalms. First of all, they're prayers. They're prayers. They are not the intent of the individual. This is not the individual saying, I am going to do this to this person, and I want your blessing upon me. They're, they're prayers. They're requests to God to do something about the injustice that has been committed. And second, imprecatory psalms, at the very foundational level, are the prayers of Christ. We have to see that David is speaking here as a prophet. He's speaking by the Spirit of God. Because only Christ alone was so utterly holy, so perfectly in tune with the will of God, that only Christ could speak such words truthfully. And he alone would fulfill these psalms when he defeated his enemies on the cross. In Matthew 25, verse 41, we read that when Jesus comes back to, to, to judge the living and the dead, verse 41 of Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so Jesus will one day fulfill this psalm in a much greater way than we can even imagine. He will make very short work of all his enemies. And before him on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, whether they like it or not. All who have opposed him, he will destroy. He will bring just retribution upon them. But until that time, we are not to bring physical retribution to our enemies. We can apply this psalm to our lives in this way, that we may pray to the Lord our God that those who oppose his church, that their plans would be frustrated, that they would be overturned in their, in their direction, that many who are hostile to tr to cr towards Christ today would embrace him as Lord and Savior. And so we can pray for the salvation of the enemies of the church as we try to apply this psalm to our lives. And we may apply Psalm 69 as we pray that I, as God's people, we may continue to use the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We may continue to cast down arguments and every false teaching that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We may pray for obedience as we live in this world as God's people. We may pray for peace 
can reconciliation with others when, we, when there are conflicts that arise in our lives. We may pray for hearts of love and forgiveness so that we in turn will bring no slander against the Lord's name. Congregation, Psalm 69 is about the suffering of Christ ultimately, but also his victory. The final verses of the psalm remind us that Christ would triumph and he did. And it reminds us that because he suffered through the most overwhelming of times and he emerged victorious, we may be confident that in him we are never at the mercy of our enemies, whether those enemies be physical, emotional, or spiritual. On that first Good Friday, our Lord Jesus Christ sunk down into the deep waters. He gave himself over to suffering for us. Such a Savior is worthy of our trust, our love, and our thankful labor. Amen. Let's return in our hymnal to Psalm 69, and let's sing stanzas 10 